We are in the second week of a series that we are doing called The Logic of Faith. And uh, this is a series that is a little different than other series that we have done in the past. We're engaging the Bible a little differently than we usually do, where we usually unpack it on a Sunday morning. We are instead uh, asking some of the why questions beneath the what of Christian faith. And we're really trying to engage some of the conversations that are happening, not just from a Christian perspective, but from uh, a perspective of people who are not yet Christian who are skeptical towards faith. And, um, and so last week I talked about how do we explain existence? Why is there something rather than nothing? Next week I'm going to talk about where meaning comes from and how God helps us make sense of meaning. I'm going to talk then about evil and suffering and how we make sense of that, their existence in the world. And, um, and so these are really relevant, real conversations that people are having. And, uh, and I also want to prepare you, if you weren't here last week, um, this is a little bit more of a mind-heavy series. One of the things that Jesus said is that you should love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And so this is definitely more aimed at the mind. It's going to probably take a little mental energy to hang with me uh, uh, through some of this. But I assure you, if you are willing to do the mental work and you ask the questions that come to mind and you wrestle with some of the things that we're talking about, um, you're really going to benefit in the long run from, from doing this work. And, um, and I also want to say we, we are totally wanting to make space for further questions. So if, if you don't agree with something that I say, or you just simply have a question of clarification, or you uh, want to add another point, um, we want to hear from you. You can go ahead and text in uh, your questions to this number on the screen. It's the same number that's in your bulletin to text in when you just say that you're here. You can also uh, write me an email. I'm also game with human-to-human -human interaction. We can do that in this day and age, and I'm happy to talk to you just personally as well, but we want to hear from you. Okay, uh, before we get into um, some, some thick stuff, let's go ahead and bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you thanking you for this opportunity to, to think this morning. We thank you that you've given us these minds that are this incredible gift and this incredible resource to, um, to live life and to meditate on what life is all about and, and hopefully lead us to see who you are and your great love for us, Lord. And I just pray that my words this morning would help us do that, 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 that the things that we discuss would be edifying for people, and even if they would raise further questions, Lord, that you would help us engage those and see truly how good you are and how you have an incredible love for each and every one of us that not only saves us, but absolutely saves this world. And we pray that in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'm going to make the case this morning that I believe morality is evidence for God. I want to try to convince you that your deep-seated sense that there is such a thing as right and there is such a thing as wrong is actually evidence for God and even more so that it's evidence that God created you in his image and gave you a moral conscience which leads you back to God. Morality is evidence for God. That's what we're aiming for this morning. And let me begin this conversation by first asking you a question. 
Can you imagine a time when this statement is not true? Lying is never okay. Killing is never okay. Can you imagine a time when this statement is not true? I see some hesitant nods. Yes, it's okay. Even if you're in church, you can nod a hesitant. Yes, I think that's actually the right answer here. I think that most all of the time, most all people would think that lying and killing are, are, are morally wrong. There are times we can imagine circumstances, situations that would come together where they would be unfortunately justifiable, right? Like, for instance, if somebody was trying to kill someone or us, like, um, we would feel that it might be okay to lie to hide that person or to protect ourselves, might not be what we would want to do, but it might be morally justifiable. Or, for instance, if someone was simply trying to kill us or someone that we loved, and the only last option that we had in self-defense was to take their life, it seems like in that situation there would be no guilt. It would be morally justifiable to, to protect yourself in self-defense. And in fact, uh, on that last point, you may know our legal system agrees with me on this and many of you because there is space in our laws for a citizen to use whatever force is necessary, including deadly force, to stop a light-threatening attack on themselves or someone else. So while we recognize that lying and killing are wrong, there are times, situationally, circumstantially, where most of us are willing to say they are unfortunately okay. Okay, so one thing that's very interestingly happened is that people have, have looked at this, that there are morals that are actually subject to circumstances, and they have then concluded that morality is subjective. And what, what I mean by that is because killing is wrong in most of these situations and maybe okay in this situation, they'd say, well, that means there isn't any absolute objective pattern for whether or not killing and lying are wrong. In other words, objective moral values exist. There's no moral code that we can apply to all people at all times in all situations, right? Objective moral values exist. They are instead subjective. And I, I, I want to tell you uh, that I do not believe that is right. I wanted to share these examples because there's some confusion here, but I do not believe that because it might be unfortunately okay to lie to someone in one situation, it means that it mor morals are subjective. I think that they are objective. And let me show you the reason why I believe that by reframing the original question like this. Lying for fun is never okay. Killing for fun is never okay. So even though that might seem a little trite, what inserting that expression for fun does is it helps us to see how we can simply rephrase this statement to make it always true, right? To kill or lie for fun, you and I can't imagine any situation ever where this would be morally acceptable, it's always true, and really this specific example is helping us to see this in a general way in which we can actually state this as an objective truth. It's never okay to kill or lie without proper justification. You see that? 
It's never okay to kill or lie without proper justification. Can you think of any situation where that statement is not 100% true? You can't. And what that means is that it is an objectively moral statement. It means that it is an objective moral. It is true for all people at all times in all places. It's never okay to kill or lie without proper justification. And so unless you want to argue with me on that, what we have actually done together here is just proven the fact that objective moral values do exist. Objective moral values exist if killing and lying are never okay without proper justification. Do you see that? Okay, so here's the thing. I don't think that most people in the world would really have any problem with this idea that objective moral values exist. Very tiny part of the population is going to argue that, right? We can see that killing and lying and racism and rape are horrible, absolutely repugnant things that don't need to happen and that we should not be okay with. But what is very interesting is that while we can see that, while we would agree with that, what most of us have never really thought deeply about is why we think that and where that moral value comes from. And this is really what I want to hone in on this morning. Where do those objective moral values come from? We seem to agree they exist. Where is the source of their existence? Who or what has made that value? That's a really important question. And there is a guy named J. Warner Wallace who actually uh, is really helpful here. He was a fellow who was a crime scene investigator. He looked at cold cases as well as, um, you know, immediate crime scene cases. And, uh, and what he has done is some really incredible work applying some of those same principles he did looking at some of the claims of Christian faith. So for instance, he has written a book looking at the resurrection of Jesus like a cold scene case and studying. It's a fantastic book and, uh, and, and it, it, it's, it's really helpful. And what, why I'm bringing it up here is because there's a principle that's, I think, really helpful for us to, to introduce. Warner Wallace says, when he is walking up on a scene, a death scene, not a crime scene, a death scene, and trying to determine what happened there, one of the critical questions that he asks is, can all the evidence be explained inside the room? Can all the evidence be explained inside the room? Can everything we see here be explained with what we see here? Does it all make sense together? And what this question does was help him determine whether a death scene was possibly a crime scene. Because if everything could be explained inside the room, like the person died of natural causes, they had a heart attack, or you can see that they hit their head on the counter, you don't need anything outside the room to explain what happened there. But if perhaps, as every CSI show for the last decade has taught us, we find one hair in there that has DNA of neither friend nor family or anyone else who's supposed to be in the room, what that might suggest to us is that there might be someone from outside the room, an intruder who is related to this cause of death, right? The evidence itself, sometimes if the story doesn't add up, would point to something outside of the room. So similarly then, what J. Warner Wallace says, if we're to discover some evidence like objective moral values exist, 
right? And we just did that. We discovered that objective moral values exist. What we need to determine is if we can make sense of objective moral values inside the room. In other words, inside the room is like in the material world that we see from an atheistic perspective that says there is no God. Can we make sense of morality if all we are is material and matter and physical instead of trying to make sense immediately by introducing the metaphysical or God, right? So, so you see what's going on there? This is the really critical question about morality. Where is their source? Can we make sense of morality with what we see from an atheistic perspective? And I want to just go through here a couple ways that people have tried to do this, who have said there are objective mor morals, and, uh, and here is how I, I make sense of their source. Uh, here, here's the first example. And it's between uh, an atheist named Bertrand Russell was in a debate many years ago on the BBC with a Catholic father named Frederick Copleston. And um, at one point in this debate, Copleston and Russell got into a discussion on where they, uh, what they thought about morality and where it came from. And, and I really want to share with you uh, the, the place where Bertrand Russell explains his position. He, he said this, you see... I feel that some things are good and that other things are bad. And I love the things that are good, that I think are good, and I hate the things that I think are bad. And I don't say that these things are good because they participate in the divine goodness. And so what Russell is saying is, I'm able to determine the difference between good and bad and know things are good and bad, and I don't need to posit a God. I'm able to see it. I'm able to judge it. So Copleston asked back, yes, but what's your justification uh, for distinguishing between good and bad, or how do you view the distinction between them? And Russell said, I don't have any justification any more than I have when I distinguish between blue and yellow. What is my justification for distinguishing between blue and yellow? I can see that they are different. Copleston replies, well, that's an excellent justification. I agree. You distinguish blue and yellow by seeing them. Then he goes on, and this is the really important question. So you distinguish good and bad then by what faculty? And you know what Russell said? By my feelings, what else? By my feelings, what else? So just to be clear, the atheist Bertrand Russell said that the way he knows good and bad, the source of morality, uh, is, is through how he feels about a certain situation. And I, I want to say, on one level, I actually can appreciate Russell's answer. I think he's walked onto some solid ground here, whether he realizes it or not, whether he acknowledges it or not, because I do believe that we feel it when, when we do things that are wrong. It doesn't take a philosophy degree in ethics to know that bullying hurts someone and, and is something you should not do and participate in, or to know that stealing hurts other people and myself. We just can, can feel that. We know that. We've seen that. My two-year-old little baby girl, who is the sweetest thing in the world, hides behind a chair when she's done something wrong. She feels it when she has, has made a bad moral choice as a two-year-old. It's really pretty incredible. And just to bring in some scripture here, I, I really think this is because God has endowed us with a conscience. We have a part of God in who we are that helps us to see and value and understand right, of, right and wrong because we are created in his image. And this is something that Paul in the book of Romans says in chapter 2 when he says this, when people who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. 
their consciences. So, so what Paul is saying is that there are people who have, no, have never seen God's law, have never heard, for instance, the Ten Commandments, and yet live by a moral code. And what that tells us is that, that they, they, in their hearts, their consciences, know that a moral code exists, right? So they, in a sense, can feel it. And so I would agree. I think Russell is actually partly right here. We can feel it when things are right or wrong. But I also want to say I think Russell... It is partly way wrong on this as well, be, be, because um, to say that we are able to tell the difference between right and wrong based on how an individual human feels is totally and completely inadequate, right? And, and, and I think you guys probably immediately see that, because have you ever, ever had a moral argument with anybody? Do you think there are moral arguments in our world? Do you think everybody agrees on everything? I mean... Really, Bertrand Russell? I mean, in our incredibly complex world where there are so many different people from so many different places who have so many different worldviews, I mean, there are so many different colliding moral viewpoints. We are on a crash collision course in morality all over the place. And, and, and who's to say who's right or wrong if the way that, that we assess morality is based on the individual? It, it's subjective. It, it really is subjective as how an individual feels about it. So, so how, what do we think about that kind of morality? Well, I guess it depends on the kind of day I'm having, right? Like, and I don't mean to make light of that situation, but, but I, I mean, who's to say that your experiences and your upbringing and our, your ideas are, are better than mine or vice versa? If it's just human to human, we have no way to arbitrate between one another. And, and if it's about feeling, li- feelings, let me point out, uh, ISIS has some pretty strong feelings. And, and from a, 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 what Bertrand Russell says here, I really see no way to say that the feelings that ISIS have are, are wrong and the feelings that, uh, that the rest of the world has is right. This is not a good place to ground morality, and even most atheists would recognize this as well. So let me show you another way that this has attempted to be done and it's actually, uh, morality has been given uh, and explained as a product of the human evolutionary process. Okay, so there has been a social evolution of humans, and morality has come out of this social evolution as humans have, um, have, have learned to live with one another in the world. And I really don't have time to get into this in great detail, but uh, I would tell you this is actually where a lot of the conversation is happening today in philosophy and ethics. And, and in this view, um, just to try to make it as clear as I can, the idea is that if we've developed noses that can smell and eyes that can see, haven't we also been able to then uh, learn to live together and develop a, a, a moral conscience that's a- enabled us to propagate and move forward as a species? I mean, there is some logic to this idea. And, uh, and there are certain ways to even explain things that are challenging, like altruism, through an evolutionary standpoint. And also the case is made that if you look at different human societies around the world, and I actually think this is right, generally speaking, uh, there are certain things that most humans agree on, like murder is bad, like lying is not okay. You need to be a person of your word. Those, Those things are seen in most cultures. 
I, I don't think that the reason for that is evolutionary biology, but, but at least you guys can kind of see the case that's being made. And, and most of the other conversations are just nuances of this idea. If you're familiar with Sam Harris, who is one of the loudest voices here and who wrote a book called The Moral Landscape, where he talked, tried to prove objective morality without God, uh, and there's a big TED talk that he did about this, this is, uh, uh, he takes a nuance of this idea and applies it. But I, I, as many people who have looked at Sam Harris have pointed out, uh, is that this actually breaks down. It fundamentally undermines itself. And let me explain uh, that to you by referencing another debate that occurred. It was between uh, the very famous outspoken atheist named Richard Dawkins and a fellow named Justin Brearley. And they were, uh, they were, they were debating, and Brearley asked the question of Dawkins if he thought rape was wrong. And as you might figure, Dawkins gave the answer I think pretty much everyone would give in this scenario. Yes, I believe rape is wrong. So Brearley replied, okay, Mr. Dawkins, I agree with you that rape is wrong. I make that judgment based on a belief in God. I answer that outside of the room. I bring God into that equation, right? But you don't believe in God. How do you make that value judgment? because of evolution, and so Dawkins said, yes, I actually go on, he went on to explain how he comes to his understanding through, through evolution. So Brealy, uh, kind of seeing this, pushed in one more time, and he said, well, um, if we have evolved one way, who's to say that we couldn't have evolved another way? If we evolved into a society where rape was okay, Mr. Dawkins, do you believe then that rape would be okay? And do you know what Richard Dawkins said? I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> In case you're not hearing this clearly, Dawkins cannot say that he believes rape is not wrong. Like, you guys, you guys get that, right? He's a public figure. He would be totally dismissed. His book sales would plummet. He cannot say that he doesn't believe rape is wrong. But he knows from his position that he can actually only say that rape isn't objectively wrong, but arbitrarily wrong. It's not something that had to be, it's just something that is. So, as Brealey pushed on him later, okay, Mr. Dawkins, so you're saying then that rape is like the different, the, the reason we don't like rape is about the same difference between the reason we uh, have five fingers instead of six. Like, that's just what is, right? It's, it's not necessarily moral. And this is when Richard Dawkins said, Yes, I, I do believe that, right? And he was able to not say, I believe rape is okay or arbitrarily wrong. He was able to uphold his position. So, so I just want to be clear. When you hear Russell and you hear Dawkins, who are some of actually the strongest outspoken atheists today, uh, Russell's dead, but was it his time? Um, I, I just want to say that I, I don't think that these people who have tried to explain morality inside the room are giving very convincing arguments, right? As, as you survey, if you were to go look out and see what else has been done, I, I'll tell you, I don't think it's any better. I, and I think the major reason for this uh, was actually stated a, a long time ago by a philosopher who was no Christian, a very skeptical person, but, but who said something that has never been forgotten on this topic, and it is this. It's David Hume who said, from a statement about how things are, an is statement, we cannot infer a moral norm about how things should be, an ought statement. Does that make sense? So if everything is inside the room, 
and we're a naturalist and we think matter is all there is, I can look and say, you have black hair, right? I'm describing what is, but I cannot say to you, you ought to have red hair. You see that there's no grounds for that. That's not even a, a, a moral conversation, right? But, but, but that's the thing is there's no way to differentiate between hair and murder if we're all just matter because we are all just biological processes. As Richard Dawkins himself says, we are all just dancing to our own DNA, right? That matter is all there is. There, there's no place to do it. And uh, atheism deals in is's, so it cannot get to oughts. And morals do not come from matter. Morals come from a mind. So it is no surprise that godless attempts to explain objective morality have failed. And let me tell you, this is not just a Christian pastor's viewpoint. I want to offer you the words of the atheist, secular humanist, uh, a guy named Ronald Lindsay, who said this, surveying what's been done. These secular attempts to provide an objective foundation for morality have been, well, less than successful. So if we've looked inside the room for an explanation for morality and have not been able to find it, what would J. Warner Wallace said that ought to suggest to us? We need to look for an explanation outside the room. If there is a moral law beyond just a conversation between you and me, there has to be from outside of the room a moral lawgiver. And this is why Christians argue there is a God. If you believe that killing without justification is objectively wrong, you know what the most logical explanation for that actually is? There's a God who said, thou shalt not kill. That's not just in the Bible. That is a very logical position. And, uh, and just to give you an exposure to how this this argument that morals lead to God uh, works in philosophy, I just want to share with you uh, what's known formally as the moral argument for God. And it is a syllogism. If you were here last week, we talked about J.J. Watt as a syllogism. We're going to now talk about the moral argument for God, and it's this. Premise one, if God does not exist, moral values do not exist. Premise two, but... Objective moral values do exist. Conclusion, therefore, God exists. And so what we've done this morning is we've entered this conversation at the second premise. If we are unwilling to say that racism and rape are only arbitrarily wrong, are only subjectively wrong, and we believe that they are objectively wrong for all people, at all times, in all places, what we're saying is, I believe objective moral values exist, right? We have just uh, a firm premise too. But what have we just shown that it's really hard to explain objective moral values inside of the room? We can't ground it. And that's why premise one has been self-evident. If objective moral values exist, the only way we can make sense of them is if God exists, right? So premise one is affirmed. And so if premise one is true and premise two is true, what does that lead us to believe? Thus, God exists, right? That's the conclusion. If objective moral values exist, God exists. It, it's really kind of an incredible idea, but, but do you realize that what this is saying is the very fact that you are repulsed by rape and racism and your heart breaks when you see or experience injustice is one of the most incredible evidences 
that God exists. Your deep belief that there is something such as right and wrong is is a a clue to let you know that there is a God who also believes there is something as right and wrong. If your heart breaks over injustice, know that God's heart breaks too. If you are repulsed by rape, know that God is repulsed by rape too. If morality exists, the only way we can explain that well is that God exists. You guys got it? See the argument? Okay, hang with me, because there's a couple other things I really want you to see. Um, You know, most people, most religions, most worldviews believe in objective morality. Like I said at the beginning, there's not a lot of people who are going to argue that it's wrong to kill someone, right? Most everybody's going to affirm that. But in in most worldviews, what's very interesting is that morality is, is actually described and understood as an impersonal reality. So just like there are laws of logic that we all have to live under and use when we're communicating, or there is a law of gravity that brings our feet down to the earth, but they're impersonal things, like morality is kind of that way. It's kind of like this framework that kind of sits over who we are. There's this moral code that says this is how you ought to live, but it's not connected to a person. It's just objectively there. Kind of like um, a big impersonal Santa Claus in the sky that says you, 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 have, uh, you ought not to be naughty and I'm hoping that you're nice, right? That's actually how morality is understood in, in, in most of these systems. But the Christian understanding is nuanced and, and it's different because for the Christian, morality isn't just a set of rules. Morality is actually describing and letting us see a window into the character and the heart of God. Morality is personal for, 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 for the Christian. You see, there's a scripture that I really want you to remember and ponder because it undergirds uh, everything we've been talking about. And it's first shared in the book of Leviticus, and then Peter picks it up in 1 Peter because it's so foundational to the Christian understanding of morality, and it's this. Be holy as I am am holy. Be holy as I am holy. Notice this does not say, be holy according to my commands because they are good. That would be an impersonal reality. God would be saying, you should be holy because that's the right thing to do, but that's not what God says. He says, be holy as I am holy. He's describing a personal reality, the the fact that morality is based in who God is, and saying, this is why there's a moral code. This is why I want you to be like this, so I can be in relationship with you. Be holy, because I am holy, right? How, how does this statement that we teach kids in the church go? I'm sure you've heard it before. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And you may have heard this added to it, because that is his nature, Right? That's not just a fun thing that we teach kids. This is a theological declaration about who God is and how we understand God's goodness and experience it in the world. And if you are to look at how the Bible actually describes good and bad and then describes God 
They're aligned with one another. God is revealed to us in the scripture as good, right? God is described as light and in whom there is no darkness at all. God, we are told, does not change like shifting shadows, but keeps every single promise that he makes because he's good. God does not lie, but loves the truth because he's good. God hates injustice and always judges justly. God has a heart for the weak and the destitute, the widow and the fatherless because he's good. God humbles the wicked and he raises up the humble because God is good. God tells us that we should forgive and we should love our enemies because God is good. That's not an impersonal morality. It tells us who God is and what God is like. And, and let me just keep going with this to make the second point. You know what else is really unique to the Christian faith in our understanding of morality? It's that morality isn't the answer. Morality is not an answer, right? In most of world religions, uh, people ha have made the observation that it's always people striving to reach God. Like morality ends up being this ladder that we climb to ascend to be becoming better people or to transcend the evil and suffering that exists in this world. We ought to be moral because being a better person, being good will ultimately save us. But this is not the Christian understanding of morality nor how we get saved. We are not Christians because we're trying to be better people who are eventually worthy of heaven be because just being better people doesn't solve the incredible mess that our world is in. Being a more moral person does not heal the past pains that we carry with us that, that, that have made the world what it is and, and made us hate and, and do evil and be tempted to sin, right? Morality can tell us that the pains we experience are real and ought not to have been, but morality cannot help us fix those pains or mend them up morality has no power to, to make things better. It only tells us what ought to have been. You know, you know and I heard a story of a father this last week who um, I believe was in the Middle East, and, and he would go on a walk with his son every day to a, a certain location, and he would point up at this building and say to his son, uh, your one goal in life is to kill as many people in that building as you can. Every day this son heard this from his father, right? It, it, it's really a, a, an incredible story. So, so experience tells us that probably that father had some horrible thing happen to him to make him feel the way that he does. Morality can tell us that even though that happened, the father ought not to respond that way. Morality can tell the son you ought not to listen to your father because killing is, is never okay, right? But, but morality, that, that's where its power stops. It can't actually heal the pain that, that the father feels in his heart for what's happened in his life. It can't heal this messed up kid who's got to hear this every day of his life from his greatest authority figure. Morality simply lets us know that the world is broken and messed up, right? But you know what can heal? This child and the father and the people in those building, in that building, it, it's forgiveness, right? And now suddenly we're dealing in Christian terminology. Forgiveness is the only thing that has power 
to heal the brokenness that morality enables us to see. Forgiveness can soften our hearts when they have been absolutely ruined by the injustices that we have have experienced in our lives. Forgiveness is the only thing that's going to enable this father to look at the people in those buildings and say, I'm a sinner too, and and, and I'm going to somehow figure out how to move past this because God has, has done that with me. Forgiveness is the only thing that's going to help this father, this, this child look at his son and say, Dad, I, I know that bad things happened to you, and I'm sorry that you messed me up, but, but I, I, I want to move forward with what's right. Y- y- y'all see that? And, and so this is why in Christianity, the central image is, is not the Ten Commandments. That's not the symbol of Christianity. It's the cross, right, where justice the morality of God and the love of God, the forgiveness of God, crash into one another in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Because the cross is the only thing that's ever been able to to heal this world and and make it right, right? Pain, the the pain that we feel because things have gone wrong. Morality lets us know that that's real and that our world is broken, but it's the forgiveness of God through Jesus that that, that can save us and, and make us new again and heal our broken world. Jesus did not come to make dead people alive. Jesus died so that through the power of forgiveness, dead people can be mended and made alive again. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive, right? And and the cross is the central image of that. And and I just (laughs) want to offer you this. I, I hope that you can see that there is an incredibly compelling case that because we believe there's right or wrong, God exists in the world. But that's not the most important thing that we, that we need to see here. It, it's not just that morality leads us to God. It, it's that forgiveness and knowing that we have a good God, the cross lets us see the depth of God's love for us and offers us a way to fix what morality never could. And so the Christian case in understanding of morality is that much more compelling. Chew on that for these next few weeks. I I assure you it will help you to love and cherish the hope that we have in Jesus that much more. Would you pray with me? Lord, (sighs) we just want to thank you that um, for all the brokenness and hurt that's in our hearts, for all the pain that we have experienced, for all the pain that anyone has ever experienced, Lord, that we don't have to just have an impersonal answer, but that we see your love for us embodied in the person of Jesus. We thank you, God, that you are love and that you have offered us forgiveness. And it's by the power of the cross, recognizing our sins, that that we are saved and that you come again to make all things new. Help us to hold on to that hope as it is so dear. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.